Welcome to Queer by Candlelight, hosted by Elizabeth Crane and Dahlia Kumar. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Crane, and I have such sights to show you. And I'm Dahlia Kumar, and I'm trying to open the Lament configuration. This week, we're talking about Hellraiser, the 1987 film. There is a spoiler alert. We will be talking about the plot of this film, so do not listen to this episode if you do not want it spoiled. Hellraiser was based on the 1986 novella by Clive Barker, and the film was also both directed and written by Clive Barker only a year after the novella came out. This was largely because Barker wrote the novella with the idea of doing a film adaptation of it already in mind, which I think is interesting because the novella and the movie actually have pretty significant differences, and I wouldn't expect those differences to be as large if he already knew that he was going to make a film. At the beginning of the movie, we see Frank Cotton, and he buys an elaborate puzzle box from a merchant in Morocco um, who says that it always belonged to Frank. We then see Frank take it back to the attic of his house, where he makes a square of candles, solves it while being super sweaty and shirtless. Totally normal behavior for a simple puzzle box, you know? And then he solves it, and then hooks up here and pull him apart. We mentioned that he's sweaty because this is not a normal amount of sweaty. This is extremely extra sweaty, like drenched in water for no reason. We see shots outside of the attic, and the house is super dilapidated with lots of bugs everywhere. Then we go back to the attic, and there are chains hanging from the ceiling and piles of flesh everywhere. We see the Cenobites for the first time, with iconic leather outfits, piercings, and scars. Pinhead picks up one of the pieces of Frank and resolves the box, causing them to disappear and for the attic to clean itself. Then we see Larry and Julia arrive at the same house. Larry is Frank's brother, and Julia is his new wife that he's just married. Julia is clearly very unhappy to be at this house, but Larry says that this is his old family home that he grew up in. He also mentions that he doesn't really know where Frank is, but he assumes he's in jail. The couple discuss how Julia wants to move back to an unnamed location that was Britain, but got changed at the last minute. So secretly, they're not in Britain, but um, it's pretty much implied that they are. Uh, <laughs> and she says that she doesn't want to be in Brooklyn anymore, but this couple is clearly arguing a lot. They're not getting along well at all. They also find evidence that Frank was living in the house, but hasn't been there in a while. Larry's daughter, Kirsty, calls to say that she found her own room, although Larry wants her to stay with him. Meanwhile, Julia also finds a stack of photos of Frank with lots of different women. Larry and Julia start moving into the house, and the movers try to get Julia to give them beers, but she pointedly tells them to get it themselves. Kirstie arrives at the house, and we finally see through outside shots that it's actually very large and nice. The movers are kind of creepy to Kirstie, though. Don't love that. And they're, yeah, they're creepy right in front of Larry, which, like, why does he not stop them? This is not good behavior from Larry, and I feel like this is a trend through this movie. Mm -hmm. We then do a flashback to several years ago, and then Frank arrives at Julia's and Larry's house soaking wet from the rain. She opens the door, and 
I saw this and I started laughing when I saw this scene because I was like, why the fuck is he standing right there like that? Like, you like you guys don't know. Like, he's he's standing in the door frame, you know, and like his hands are like on both sides of the door and he's leaning forward. And then he goes, can I come in? I'm like, shut the fuck up, dog. <laughs> you look so stupid right now. I've definitely heard other podcasts reviewing this movie say that this feels like a porn intro. And I feel like that's the point. You're so right. Yeah. It is a porn intro. (laughs) Yeah. He's like standing in the rain dramatically and he just sort of like saunters in and it's so cheesy and you know that's why it's happening. Frank introduces himself as Larry's brother and the dialogue then shows that it's the day before Julia and Larry's wedding. Kirstie interrupts Julia's memory of meeting Frank, and tension is set up between the two as Julia wanders away without really talking to Kirstie. She then wanders into the attic where Frank was killed and continues her memory flashback. In this flashback, Frank seduces Julia, and we see a really, really long scene where he pulls out this flip knife and uses it to cut off her nightgown. And then they end up having sex on top of Julia's wedding dress. After they finish, Frank tells Julia that it's never enough, even after Julia promises that she'll do anything he wants. She's kind of simping. Yeah, that's the point of the movie, is that Julia is in fact simping. Um, Also, it's funny you say the scene is long, because we'll get to fun facts about the scene in the analysis section. (laughs) Back in present day, Larry cuts his hand on a nail sticking out of the wall while moving a mattress upstairs. He comes to Julia in the attic for her to bandage it because he's really afraid of the sight of blood. And while he's in the attic, quite a bit of his blood drops down onto the attic floor. After he and Julia have left the room, the blood seems to form into a small breathing shape underneath the floorboard. The floorboards shake and rattle and skeletal arms pop up through them. Slowly, a pile of goo solidifies itself into basically just a skeleton and a nervous system in one of the best practical special effects sequences ever created. No, it was so good. Like, genuinely, it was so creepily done. I really liked it. Larry and Julia are throwing a dinner party where Julia leaves abruptly, although still politely. On the way out, she kisses all of the dinner guest's cheeks, but she doesn't kiss Larry's, which is literally her husband, and she hears creaking in the attic and goes up to investigate it. A skeletal hand grabs her ankle and she screams. The skeleton won't let her leave and insists that she doesn't look at him. The skeleton then asks her to help him and explains that he is actually Frank. Frank the skeleton then tells Julia that he needs more blood and that she needs to help heal him by getting him this blood. Kirsty, still very drunk from the dinner party, starts to come upstairs, and her and Julia have a weird, tense staring match as Julia leaves the attic. Then, Kirsty walks home with Steve, her boyfriend. She says she wanted her own room because she doesn't like her stepmother, Julia. Also, a person experiencing homelessness watches Kirsty and Steve from a doorway, who continues to follow Kirsty throughout the movie. That night, Julia can't sleep as she reminisces how she promised Frank she would do anything for him. She gets up and goes to the attic to tell Frank that she'll help him. Kirsty then has a nightmare about a room covered in feathers and a corpse lying on a table while a baby cries in the distance. 
She pulls back the sheet covering the corpse and it was her father. Steve then wakes her up and Kirstie calls Larry to make sure he's okay. Frank then also watches Larry take the phone call and learns that Kirstie exists. The next day, Julia picks up a man at a bar. She is wearing the most shoulder pads to ever happen. She brings the man back home to the house, and she's acting very reluctant to kiss him, but he gets mad at her about this and yells at her about changing her mind, because he is the actual worst. Julia brings him up to the attic, and he comments that it's not the bedroom, but she says she prefers the floor. Julia starts to undress him, but he says he needs to use the bathroom. As he tries to leave the room, Julia hits him multiple times with a hammer, killing him. Frank then asks her to leave the room, and she leaves, clearly very upset and covered in blood. Julia then washes up and returns to the attic, finding the man to just be a husk, and that Frank has some skin back. Frank then tells her that every drop of blood she spills makes him better. He also tries to get her to come to him because he says he wants to touch her and says, Come to daddy. Larry then arrives home. Julia hides the husk of the corpse in a spare storage room and then hides from Larry in the bathroom, saying that she's sick and asks Larry to bring her a brandy. Julia returns to the attic and Frank says that he's starting to feel pain, which means his nerves are working. He says that he still needs Julia to kill one or two more men, which is something she's not looking forward to, but Frank explains that he needs to run after he's been healed because the Cenobites will be after him. Frank says that he and Julia belong to each other and can be together again after he's healed. He says it's like love, only real. The next day, Kirstie's at her job at a pet store and isn't having the best time. The man experiencing homelessness who was watching her earlier is eating the crickets they use as food for some of the pets, and Kirstie chases the man out of the store, but starts to get weird vibes as she hears the sound of many birds flying away as he leaves. In the next scene, Julia brings home a second man and murders him too. Julia seems to be much less upset about this one, and we can see her happily smirking at the end. Julia goes to visit Frank again later, and he's smoking a cigarette, saying he can finally taste it. Julia presses him for an explanation, and Frank shows her the puzzle box, saying it opens doors to the pleasures of heaven or hell, he didn't care which. He said he wanted to push the limits of human experience, and that the Cenobites showed him pleasure and pain, inextricable from each other. There are many shots of the Cenobites torturing him, mainly by stringing him up with hooks. Frank says that the Cenobites will never get him back and that Julia will come with him when he runs away. That night, Larry's watching wrestling on the TV and notes that wrestling used to upset Julia but doesn't anymore. And she says that she's seen worse. Frank is banging around and making a lot of noise in the attic, which Larry then notices and goes to investigate. But Julia says that she's scared of the thunder outside and tries to get him to not go to the attic. Larry eventually does go into the attic but doesn't see anything and assumes it's just rats. The audience then sees that Frank has nailed still alive rats to the wall. Larry and Julia go to their bedroom and start having sex as part of Julia's bid to get him to not go in the attic, but the audience sees that Frank is watching them from the closet. Frank stands behind Larry and gets out his knife, clearly threatening Larry, and Julia starts screaming no, but Larry won't get off of her. Frank slices a rat in half in front of her. Her screaming finally gets Larry to stop, but he complains a bunch about her changing her mind. 
the scene emphasizes that Larry is not necessarily a very good person and that he's low-key a creep like all the other men in this movie. He really isn't, because, like, the way she was screaming and begging, too, it was just like, stop. The next day, Larry and Kirstie are having dinner at a Chinese restaurant. Larry's talking about how weird Julia has been recently and how she won't leave the house. Larry also asks Kirstie to drop by sometime and to try to make up with Julia. The next day, Frank tries to convince Julia to kill Larry, but she won't do it. Instead, Julia gets a random guy, but Kirstie walks up to the house at the same time Julia is bringing the random guy home, so she gets suspicious. Julia then gets the guy into the attic where she hits him with a hammer but doesn't kill him, and Frank grabs him from her and orders Julia out of the room. Kirstie walks into the house, and Julia hides from her in the spared storage room. Kirstie sees the half-dead man stumble out of the attic and Frank grab him. Frank then tells Kirstie that he's Uncle Frank and says, come to daddy again. He also traps her in the attic and pins her to the wall while saying like super creepy things. Kirstie then reaches into his half-formed ribcage and gets away from being pinned because Frank can now feel pain. She picks up the puzzle box to use as a weapon, but when Frank freaks out about her holding it and how she needs it, she tells him she'll give it back, then throws it out the window instead. With him distracted, she runs out of the house and picks up the puzzle box from where it landed in the yard. Kirstie wanders days through the street. She passes nuns who see her clearly injured with blood all over her shirt, but ignore her. She passes out and has a weird dream of a flower opening its petals. She then wakes up in the hospital, where the same flower is on the TV. Kirstie wants to call her father, but the doctor forces her back into bed. They ask her what the puzzle box is and why she was clinging to it, and she says she doesn't remember. The doctor says that he'll call the police, but that they'll leave the box with her to see if it jogs her memory. After everyone leaves her room, she starts to mess around with the puzzle box, and the box seems to solve itself. Soon, the hospital walls crack open into the Cenobite's dimension. Kirstie walks through the crack in the wall and hears a baby crying in the distance. Eventually, a Cenobite that's not humanoid, but looks like an upside-down salamander with a semi-human face chases her down the hallway and into her hospital room. The crack then seems to close behind her, but when she messes with the box to get it to close for sure, it won't close. The tiles then turn black and yellow. She tries to leave her room but is locked in, and the Cenobites then appear. The Chatterer pins her to the wall, and Pinhead says, The box, you opened it, we came. Pinhead then explains to Kirsty that the box summons them and that they are explorers in the further regions of experience. Demons to some, angels to others. Kirsty says that she didn't mean to open it or summon them, but Pinhead says that she must come with them because she did open it. Kirsty then tells them that Frank escaped in an effort to get them to let her go, and this surprises the Cenobites. Kirsty promises to lead the Cenobites to Frank if they let her go. Although they aren't 100% in on this deal, they do agree to at least temporarily let her go. Pinhead ex- exits and promises to tear her soul apart if she fails to give them Frank. Back at the house, Julia is freaking out about Kirsty potentially going to the police, but Frank says he needs a new skin before he can leave the house, as he's now a mostly formed human, but still doesn't really have any outer skin. A nurse tells Steve that Kirsty has escaped the hospital without being properly discharged. 
A bandage by normally skinned hand strokes Julia's face and leaves streaks of blood on it. And then Julia and Larry have sex. Kirsty arrives at Larry and Julia's house, and Julia opens the door, saying that it's very late. But Kirsty demands to see Larry. Larry then appears and reassures Kirsty that Julia told him everything that happened and that he knows Frank is back and is evil. Larry then says that he killed Frank for his crimes and that he will go to the police in a second. Kirsty's super confused and starts crying and she demands to see Frank's body. Larry then tells Julia to show Kirsty Frank's body and Julia takes her to the attic and shows her a skinned corpse. Afterwards, Julia locks her into the attic with the corpse. The Cenobites arrive in the attic and tell Kirsty that they want the man who, who murdered the corpse. Kirsty, still thinking that Larry was the one who killed that body, refuses and runs out of the attic, now unlocked. Larry tries to calm her down, but then he says come to daddy, causing Kirsty to realize that Larry is actually just Frank wearing Larry's skin that he flayed off of Larry. Kirsty rakes her nails down Frank's face, causing part of his skin to peel off, and Frank pulls out his switchblade knife he's used the whole movie. Frank tries to stab Kirsty but misses, and accidentally stabs Julia instead, who is trying to hold on to Kirsty. Frank then drains Julia's corpse dry like he has all the other ones, claiming that her death was nothing personal. Frank then starts to chase Kirsty around the house, and Kirsty hides in the spare storage room where Julia had, has been hiding all the bodies and has to avoid screaming as both Jesus statues and the husk of corpses of the men Julia picked up fall on top of her. Kirsty thinks Frank has left the house, so she leaves the storage room and starts crying on the stair landing when Frank steps out of the attic and corners her. He says that he's her dear old Uncle Frank, finally admitting his identity, which causes the Cenobites to confirm that he is the person they're looking for. They then appear and say that he admitted it with his own lips. Frank tries to stab Kirsty for setting him up, but as he raises his hand, the Cenobites stab a hook through it and string him up with the hooks again. Frank then licks his lips and says, Jesus wept, before being pulled to pieces by the chains. Kirsty runs out of the attic when the female Cenobite starts chasing her. Kirsty sees the body of Julia chained up with the Cenobite's chains and is holding the puzzle box. Kirsty grabs the puzzle box from Julia, and Pinhead appears and tells her, We have such sights to show you. Kirsty resolves the puzzle box, causing Pinhead to be banished back to his home dimension, but apparently this time it just causes Pinhead to be banished back and none of the other Cenobites. Kirsty then resolves the box several more times consecutively to banish all the other Cenobites. Steve appears at the house, which is now starting to fall apart from all of the interdimensional Cenobite nonsense happening inside of it. Steve and Kirsty are reunited, but as Steve opens the door to leave the house, the salamander-esque Cenobite from the hospital tunnel is hanging in the doorway and knocks the puzzle box out of Kirsty's hands. Kirsty has to fight it to get the puzzle box back and resolves it again to also banish that Cenobite. Kirsty and Steve then burn the puzzle box in a bonfire, which doesn't seem like it would work because the box is mostly metal and it's not like a really big or strong fire. But then the man experiencing homelessness who's been following Kirsty the whole movie appears and Kirsty hears the sound of beating wings again. The man grabs the puzzle box out of the fire and also gets lit on fire, and then he turns into a skeletal dragon Cenobite and flies away. In the final scene of the movie, the box is sold by the same random merchant in Morocco to another unknown buyer. We hope that was more interesting than the Wikipedia summary. Mm -hmm.
This is Elizabeth Crane just chiming in to say please rate our podcast five stars and leave a written review if you have a spare second. This is the metric that a lot of podcast apps use to track which podcasts are being listened to a lot. So we would really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thank you. Welcome back from the break as we analyze many of the unusual and strange happenings in this movie, of which there are many. First of all, the opening theme, kind of iconic, as well as the score in general. It's very, like, bombastic, symphonic. It's pretty fun. Um, Clive Barker apparently had, like, a band in mind to do all the music for this movie, but the studio was like, no, just put a normal symphonic score. And I feel like this... The score doesn't get talked about as much as the theme songs for other, like, iconic 80s franchises like Halloween. Like, everyone knows the Halloween theme. But this one's pretty cool, too. I like it. The music was nice. I don't really I don't really know too much about music. But I liked it. It was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. <laughs> so, in the movie, Frank and Larry's mother was apparently Catholic because the house is absolutely full of statues of Jesus and Mary before Larry moves in. So this family must have been raised Catholic, and so was Clive Barker. Clive Barker says that this movie was inspired by both Catholicism and his experience in queer, sort of like BDSM nightlife, and I think that there's a lot to look at how Catholicism is treated in this movie, because we know that Frank was raised Catholic, but still ended up having sexual preferences that would definitely be frowned on by the Catholic Church. And Clive Barker has also spoken about how he thinks that the Catholic Church is like very bad for their opinions on gay people, obviously. <laughs> and, um, oh, I don't think we've said that yet in this episode, but Clive Barker is gay. And he says that, like, that experience of growing up gay in the Catholic Church, like, inspired this movie. That makes sense. I didn't know that while I was watching the movie, but that does make, like, his backstory, Clive Barker's backstory, makes sense um, in relation to the movie. I mean, there's a, I feel like there is definitely a lot of religious symbolism in this movie. You know, like, Cenobites, I think... Yeah, Cenobite by itself is a word that means a member of a religious group living together in a monastic community. So it makes sense that a lot of this movie does have religious symbolism throughout it, you know? Yeah, there's uh, also the fact that the Cenobites are a member of a religion called the Order of the Gash, which isn't really talked about in this movie, but it's in the novella. Um, and the... Cenobites are called like high priests and things like that. Like, they're very clearly some sort of religious order in this other dimension. And also worth noting is the scene where the nuns choose not to help Kirstie, even though she has like blood all over her. So, I think we see not only that this movie has religious imagery, but that it's distinctly negative towards religion. Mm -hmm. I also think with all this negative opinion of Catholicism and its clear ties to BDSM culture, this franchise got extremely mainstream in the like late 80s and 90s. 
to the point where Pinhead was like a guest on talk shows, not Doug Bradley, like in costume as Pinhead. He was just like on TV chilling all the time because that's what happened to these like 80s franchise horror icon people. And I'm just very curious as to how people watch this movie and were like, yes, this is the same as Halloween. That's so funny. Wait, one minute. I'm going to try to make sure this bit of trivia is correct. Because there was an actor who, this was like his debut, and he was offered like two roles and he wanted one where he could actually show his face. Yeah, it was Doug Bradley. Yeah. They offered Doug Bradley to either be the one of the movers or Pinhead. And he almost took the movers, even though it's like a 30 second role, because you can see his face if he's the mover. So he thought that'd be better for his career. Mm. no that makes sense and it's just kind of ironic when you think about that initial like thought process to now where he's iconic for playing pinhead oh for sure yeah he has like a huge following i'm pretty sure he does like the convention circuit and stuff but yeah he it's also worth noting in that context that when the movie was written pinhead was not a more central cinebite than the other three the dialogue was split equally between them but Once they started filming, they realized that the Chatterer and Butterball couldn't actually speak because of how heavy the prosthetics were around their mouths. So the remaining dialogue got split up between the female Cenobite and Pinhead. And Pinhead was sort of solidified as the lead out of these four, just because he had the most like iconic lines of dialogue. And also, he wasn't supposed to be called Pinhead. He was just called the lead Cenobite. But fans were like, that's Pinhead. (laughs) It's a it's a pretty suitable name, I must say so. Yeah, his head sure is covered in pins. That's <laughs> that's for sure. Speaking of, the Cenobites are just so cool. Like the aesthetics of them, incredibly iconic. The special effects are by Bob Keen in this movie, who's a very well respected special effects artist, and they're all practical. So there's no, like, bad CGI, except in the very end. We know the CGI is bad at the end. But throughout all the rest of the movie, except for, like, the last 30 seconds, everything's practical effects. And the makeup that is on the Cenobites looks so detailed, intricate, and very, very unique. There's not another movie that has a similar concept to this. A hundred percent. The non-digital special effects are really good. (laughs) I mean, it also makes sense because, like, digital effects have progressed so long since then. But, yeah, no, I really, really like the special effects in it because there's just something so cool and really impressive about being able to make. I think it's because we live in a time where digital effects are everywhere, but being able to make something that's, like, handmade you know, man-made, blah, 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 and make it look so especially scary or frightening, and that just requires so much skill and imagination. It's insane. Yeah, I agree. I think it's so rare now. Like, Terrifier 2 just came out, and everyone is talking about it. I mean, I'm sure it is a good movie, but not necessarily because it's a good movie, but because it used practical special effects on a low budget, and they turned out really, really well. And people are saying, oh, this is like 80s horror movies because that type of movie just doesn't exist anymore. And so people are really praising it for going back to the sort of like lost art form. That's so cool. I need to check it out. 
uh, be warned, it is known for being very, very, very extreme. Like, there's a bunch okay. of news stories of people, like, throwing up in the theaters. Oh, shit. No way. <laughs> I also think it's really interesting how the Cenobites in pretty much every movie in the franchise are positioned not as the main villain. They're dangerous, but impartial. And they're this sort of third party that they pose a threat, like, they are villainous, but they're ultimately less threatening and less of a direct antagonist than the humans in the film. No, I do think that's really interesting. I mean, I feel like it probably just goes to show that humans are, (laughs) humans can be evil creatures, you know, but they're definitely more of an impartial third party. You know, it's pretty much just, did you open the puzzle? Okay, well, (laughs) then we're taking you with us. Exactly. We have so much to show you. Yeah, yeah, the Cenobites, they have their goals and sort of rules that they follow, and if you don't mess with them, they're just gonna chill. Meanwhile, Frank and Julia, the human antagonists of this film, are, like, murdering everyone. Frank is assaulting Kirstie, Julia is, like, hammering people to death. They're clearly a more direct threat to more people and are positioned as the main antagonist at the end of the day. I also think this is interesting in the context of this movie being lumped in with things like Halloween, because the like horror icons of Halloween, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, they're very clear antagonists, and they're like horror villain icons, and then people lump Pinhead with, in with that as well. And obviously Pinhead is a horror villain, but I don't think Pinhead is a slasher villain. I think Pinhead is more of a villain in a supernatural genre than a slasher genre. I mean, what defines being a villain? You know, is it just like doing bad things to the main character? I mean, pretty much. Yeah, (laughs) I think so. I mean, are you trying to argue that Pinhead is not the villain? No, it's just like, I'm like, if you think about it from Pinhead's perspective, you know, they mess with the cube. They messed with the cube. They did, did mess with the cube. He just, he just did his usual business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. You that's know? true. And, like, if people come willingly, like, Frank, then, like, is Pinhead villainous in that sense? Or, or, like, not just Pinhead. Are the Cenobites villainous in that sense? Like, f- would it would it be applicable to all situations? Mm, we're getting into interesting moral quandaries here. <laughs> I think that... They would still be villainous because their whole thing is torturing people. That's true. That's true. I was just looking at, if you just look at the torture part, yeah, that's that's, that's pretty bad. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they sure do be torturing. But I feel like you're falling prey to the innate queer desire to be like, ooh, cool villain. (laughs) Yeah. Cool, queer-coded villain. Mm -hmm. Mm, We love those. Hey, I don't kink shame here. No, we're going to talk about that in this analysis. It's so true. We are not kink shaming. They're iconic and we love them. Yeah, no, you're right. They do be kind of... Tortury. So the portrayal of Cenobites is somewhat different in the novella, which I think is really interesting because, like I said, Barker knew he was going to make a movie going in. So I'm very curious why these changes were made, if he had this with his goal in mind, and they were made so close to each other. 
So there is some differences in like the hierarchy of how they exist. I believe the there's like the high priestess is like a leader, and then the engineer is the leader over the high priestess or something like that. And Pinhead is not the leader. Pinhead is just like a minion. Also in the novella, I think this is the most interesting change. All the Cenobites are supposed to be very androgynous and even leaning towards feminine. And I do feel that the movie dropped the ball on this a bit, since as much as I do love their designs, all four are pretty clearly gendered, and one of them is literally called the female Cenobite, and is the only female actress playing one of the four Cenobites. And I really just feel like that's like not it, in terms of, in the novella, they're all supposed to be androgynous, and a lot of them are described as more feminine. I agree. I feel like the androgyny definitely adds a certain nuance to the Cenobites that giving them, like, a specific gender does not have. Not quite sure how to explain the nuance, you know? (laughs) Well, there's also, they're clearly supposed to be queer figures, and making them pretty clearly gendered takes away that portrayal of them is being queer in terms of their gender you can say that like they're a little androgynous like they're not not androgynous they Mm -hmm. are all wearing like skirts but i would also say that those are supposed to be reflective of catholic priests like robes which are like not androgynous like you literally have to be a man to be a catholic priest Mm -hmm. um also the female cinevite has like a shaved head but overall their designs are pretty clearly, like, there are three men and one woman. Yeah. I also do think that it's kind of weird where it's, like, Pinhead, Chattering, Cenobite, and then, um... Shoot, what's the other one called? And Butterball. Oh, yeah. And then it goes, Female Cenobite. It's, like, her one defining characteristic is that she's female. Yes, for sure. And, I mean, everyone talks about this. It is so weird, looking back at it from modern day, to be like, ah, yes, it's the female Cenobite. Like, everyone, all the other ones have, like, cool names that have to do with, like, how weird their makeup is. And, like, what's what's her deal? Yeah. I don't know. She's a woman. Great. Wow. Good for her. <laughs> Good for her. Uh, so other differences from the novella include that in the novella, Kirstie is not Larry's daughter. Instead, she's the same age as Julia and Larry, and a love triangle with Larry and Julia. She also, I feel like she's not quite as a like strong presence in the novella. She's kind of like whiny. Like I love movie Kirsty. Some people don't. I don't know why. Some people don't love movie Kirsty. But I really think that movie Kirsty is like pretty put together. She's very, very intelligent because she manages to figure out who the Cenobites are and that they want Frank without having any of the exposition that the audience has at this point. But in the novella, she's so, like, whiny, and all she ever does is talk about how in love with Larry she is, and it's her, like, only personality trait. Damn. I do kind of like that they made her Larry's daughter instead. I feel like, like, for example, at the end, when she thought the skinned man was Frank and... Larry, her father, is the one who's, like, downstairs with, like, Julia, you know? And and how when the Cenobites showed up, she was like, no, this wasn't a deal. Like, you can't take him. You know, I feel like that added a certain nuance because it was, like, it was more about a father-daughter relationship than it was about a lover relationship. And I, I just, I like that. It was a little wholesome. 
if you want to say. <laughs> yeah, I think that creating a family dynamic makes you more invested because you're really going to sympathize with uh, a daughter who's worried about her father or vice versa, as opposed to maybe uh, like a love interest that's not even reciprocated. Like th- I feel like there's a lot less emotional investment in that. Yeah, also, come on, love triangles, they're overdone. They are overdone. We still get a love triangle with Frank, Larry, and Julia, but we don't need a second one. One is plenty. We're good. Yeah. My god, yeah. Imagine having two love triangles. We don't need it. It's fine. (laughs) So another change from the novella. As previously stated, uh, Pinhead's not the main Cenobite in the novella. But also, Pinhead is, once again, androgynous, but definitely implied to be more feminine than masculine. And in the movie, they cast Doug Bradley, who is pretty masculine in his, like, prosthetics and appearance, and has this, like, really, really, like, deep voice. Um, And that's one of Pinhead's specific characteristics in the novella, is having, like, a very high-pitched voice. Also, there's a lot more uh, background information on... The Cenobites, uh, how to summon them, and Frank's backstory and motivation for summoning them. Also, he got the Lament configuration, the puzzle box, which is also called the Limerkind configuration. I might be pronouncing that wrong, honestly. Um, From Dusseldorf and not from Morocco. Dusseldorf. It's in Germany. (laughs) And I do feel like them changing it to Morocco does add a little unfortunate xenophobia because it's sort of saying that this threat comes from a foreign place right and we see that this market is very in the opening credits the market is very like stereotypically maybe like eastern inspired and it's just implying that this threat is coming from a very different culture whereas if it's from Dusseldorf I feel like that's a lot less xenophobic because uh you know Germany is very western and probably would not have been portrayed as othered as Morocco was no I definitely agree I feel like it kind of plays into xenophobia and also like how foreign countries or whatever are kind of viewed as exotic or you know just like that narrative that there's weird things over there, weird, dangerous things over there. Um, one last change was that Steve absolutely did not exist in the novella, and let's be honest, he barely exists in this movie. I do not care about Steve. Some people don't like Kirstie. I'm out here not liking Steve. He does nothing, and he contributes nothing. I honestly kind of forgot about him, and then he showed up at the end of the house. I was like, who is this man? Right? And who then- is he? <laughs> Like, oh, it's her random boyfriend. Random boyfriend. Why is he there? He doesn't do anything. And I do kind of like that he doesn't do anything because we don't want Kirsty to have to get saved by Steve. Yeah, that would be I, I bad. like that she wasn't like a damsel in distress. No, never. She takes care of herself. But alternatively, did Steve really need to be there? No. He added nothing to the film at all. Like, literally, if he was gone, storyline, plotline would have stayed the same. Yeah. I do think that the women in general in this movie are portrayed pretty well. Like, Julia's evil, but she's also extremely three-dimensional. You could argue she's the main character of this movie, certainly of the first half of the movie. Her motivations are very well fleshed out, and she's cool. And she has unnecessary shoulder pads. 
Mm-hmm. No, Julia, yeah, she's cool. She's a simp. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> but no, she she is cool. Like, I really like her hair. I remember she'd wear these, like, big-ass star earrings. I was like, okay, slay. Um. <laughs> <laughs> right? Her fashion is good. Mm-hmm. In a very 80s way, but good. Yeah. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I did enjoy her character. Kind of sucks she died. Oh, don't worry. She's She'll be back. <laughs> you really think they're going to come off one of the main antagonists in the first movie in a franchise? Probably not. No, no, no. So. <laughs> she'll be back. And then also, as we already said a couple times, I feel like Kirstie really has it together. If you do want to lump this in with Halloween, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, she takes on the position of final girl. She defeats the villains. Um, I personally think that her most iconic move is making that bargain with the Cenobites because we do have to remember that the audience knows a lot more than Kirstie does. So her ability to put together that they're after Frank is very well done. And she knows how to manipulate Frank to get him to admit that he is Frank. She keeps it together and does what she needs to do to get out of the situation. A hundred percent. I remember when I watched that scene, I was like, damn, like, how did she, like, just remember to say Frank? I was like, if this wasn't, if this was a real life situation, you know, and this wasn't written in a script, what would you say? You are Kirsty. What would you do? And I was like, I have no clue what I'd do. Like, I, I would I would probably go with the Cenobites. Like, I would give up. Like, <laughs> You'd be like, I guess I'll be tortured. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't click on it, but I was literally on YouTube earlier today, and I saw a video titled, like, How to Escape the Cenobites, and I was like, I don't think you can. I think that's kind of the whole point of the franchise is, even if you do escape, like, it's just because you're lucky, not because you actually, like, defeated them. <laughs> Yeah. No, 100%. So yeah, there's lots of cool women. I'm still a little mad over the female Cenobite thing, but like, whatever. There are cool women in this movie. Mm-hmm. All the men suck, though. Explicitly. All the men. Oh, yeah. Frank, fully. Larry, they both suck. There's the worst. I don't know shit about Steve. We don't know about Steve, but we don't trust him. No. No. I saw him, I was like, hmm, you look like, you look a little sus. He's weird. <laughs> He's weird. <laughs> yeah, like, did he even ever, did he ever wonder where, like... Kirsty was when she was in the hospital. Yeah, he, he went looking like, for her. Oh, you're right. Damn it. I can't use that point against him. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, okay. Anyway, the men are very awful, especially specifically in their treatment of women. Yeah. I also feel like Frank probably has like daddy issues or something with his come to daddy. He has to, right? Yeah. That's got to be implied. Yeah, 100%. Like, damn, dog, <laughs> you have a lot going on. <laughs> okay, let's turn to the main issue of this podcast, which is how this movie is relevant to queer culture. So we don't have any explicitly queer characters, I guess. Maybe the Cenobites? You could probably say they're explicitly queer. But this horror movie is frequently cited as being, like, crucial to queer culture, like, a cultural touchstone. Um, So... Let's talk about why that is. First of all, Clive Barker is gay, obviously, and the plot of this movie is definitely informed by his position as a gay man, and we see how his experience as a gay man sort of influences how he portrays these different characters and their attitudes towards specifically their sex lives, I would say. 
Yes, Kayakan, we love. I think you mentioned before too, like how his experience in the queer nightlife heavily influenced the movie, and I think it's also like it definitely shown through. I think it's also really interesting the focus on BDSM in this movie because I feel like like B- there's BDSM and then there's vanilla, and BDSM is often viewed as the other, and like I feel like queer people and gay people can also often be viewed as the other so it's just really interesting to see that connect in this movie especially to the lengths he takes the like sado sadomasochism sadomasochism i can't say sadomasochism (laughs) sadomasochism just say the bdsm yeah sure (laughs) the lens to which he takes the bdsm yeah those are really good points i think that it's very relevant to examine how kink is often tied to queer culture, and especially in the 80s, both the BDSM community and the queer community were alienated. So here we see those reflections of queer BDSM people as othered evil entities, but they're also fun and iconic because they're written by someone who maybe is a part of those communities. 100%. Love Clive Barker. King. Yeah, fair, fair. So yeah, there's all sorts of analysis, both academic and just like people typing things online, of the fact that every character you can think of in this movie is like secretly gay. I think the most obvious ones are the Cenobites and then Frank, who is described as trying to experience every possible sexual activity, but he's always only shown with women. I feel like... If that was true, he'd be bi or pan and be interested in just, like, everyone. I think that makes sense. I think also this movie does explore hedonism a lot. Yes. And I think hedonism, I think Oscar Wilde, the picture of Dorian Gray, honestly, yes! is just so gay. Oh, very. Oh, <laughs> extremely. Um. So, I, I like, if we're looking at this from a hedonistic aspect, too, it does make sense that Frank would be into, like, literally everyone. Because he wants to experience every single type of pain or pleasure there is out there. Yeah. So, this was Clive Barker's first movie that he directed, and he's admitted to basically not knowing what he was doing on set, but apparently the crew was very helpful and, like, guided him through the directing process, um, which is great. Um, also... This movie is extremely well-directed. Like, he's given all these interviews of, like, I didn't know what cameras were. But then you watch it and you're like, all these camera shots are really cool. So I think he, like, really came through. And I guess the crew, like, helped him with that. But, like, for a first directing experience, not knowing what he was doing, like, king. (laughs) No, he did a really good job. I remember I saw something where he was talking about how... It was also just different to film this because a lot of the places that they were filming were very narrow. So he had to learn not just normal camera shots and stuff on top of that, how to adapt to this new set where they just don't have that much room to move around. And he did a really good job. Props to him and the crew. Like, great job. Yeah, for sure. So when this movie was being made, the, like, censors and rating boards were, like, not having it. They were like, how dare you make this movie? Um, so one of the scenes that got cut down was the opening scene when Frank was 
um, caught for the first time. That was a much more extended sequence originally, and they made them cut it down so it was less gory. And one of the most infamous scenes to get cut was that the sex scene between Frank and Julia was cut down a lot. Um, But the knife was added because Clive Barker wanted to be able to show some element of this is like subversive sex, and they made him cut all of that. So he was like, let's add a knife because censors don't care if you show knives. Yeah. No, I think that's a good... I think that was a good call on his part because it can definitely fall more into the BDSM aspect of it because, like, if you... If you, if the knife wasn't there, dog, they were having vanilla sex. Let's it's be real. It's true. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> and I know uh, I was reading that before they cut it down, there was, like, spanking and stuff like that. But, like, if the final product didn't have that and they didn't have the knife, it would just been a straight couple having vanilla sex. Boring. <laughs> <laughs> like, if... If you if you like vanilla sex, totally fine. We love it. But for the sake of this movie. <laughs> yeah, true. So also, Clive Barker's working title for the movie was Sadomasochist from Beyond the Grave, which would have been hilarious. I'm not going to lie. I kind of love it. I think it's kind of fun. Yeah, it leans more into the camp aspect of this movie. Because I feel like we should talk about that because we haven't really mentioned it so far. The movie... Is not camp from beginning to end, but like, for example, when Frank dies and he says Jesus wept before he died. So camp. Yeah. It was just so well done. I thought it was really fun. Mm Mm-hmm. And in general, the movie is just so over the top that you're kind of like, yeah, camp. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, why are you acting like this? This is hilarious. Yeah, I feel like also Julia's willingness to do absolutely anything for Frank after they had sex one time. That's a little camp. Yeah, I was like, damn, girl. Like, literally day before your wedding, you know, you've ridden with Larry for however many years. You had sex with him one time. This corny ass man who was like, can I come in? (laughs) (laughs) Not can I come in. Damn, girl. Please. I think you can do better. Honestly. Uh, Yeah. Better than both Larry and Frank. Right? Like, okay, she wants Frank because he's into BDSM sex. There are not evil people who are also into that. Yeah. Go find one of the... Don't go back to Frank. He's evil. Yeah. Also, he literally died. And then he came back to... He was even... It's kind of like... I guess that's true. I guess it's not true love. It's real. It's real. It's like love, but better. Yeah, like love, but better. Okay. I feel like that also could tie back to the stigmatization of like gay people and them not being allowed to get married. No, you're so right. Yeah, like that makes sense because it's like love, but real. Yeah. Um, but also it's corny. I don't know if Clive Barker's intention was to make a commentary on gay people not being allowed to get married, but either way, it comes off as incredibly corny. It is incredibly corny. And it's like, I guess if she saw him literally from skeleton and sinew to like muscular to him putting on someone else's skin on him and still being like, yeah, I like this dude. Maybe it's something. (laughs) I don't think it is, though. I think, well, maybe it is for her. Maybe. But... Yeah. For her, I think. For him, I think he was kind of just using her. Yeah. I don't think there's ever any evidence that he cares about her. Mm Mm-mm. He was manipulating her. Absolutely. 
But yeah, anyway, I think they should have called this movie Sadomasochist from Beyond the Grave because that would have been camp. That would have been camp. I do think it was. it's a mouthful, though. I mean, sure. It is camp, though. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun. I like it. Yeah. I was just thinking from, like, an advertising thing. Mm, like, imagine yeah. trying to say it. it. would probably be, like, they would condense it down to SBG. Oh, did my you, God. Did you watch SBD, SBG this weekend? What do you think? Oh, I did watch it. I rented it from the VHS store. Oh, my God. No way. <laughs> okay, yeah. So this was one of those franchises, like Halloween, like Nightmare on Elm Street, like Friday the 13th. That just kept making sequels in the, like, 80s and 90s, even though they definitely stopped being good after, like, two or three, you know. I think you would be hard-pressed to find a horror fan that thinks that every sequel to Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, and Hellraiser is good. I think there's a delineation in all those franchises where they started being cash grabs. So for this franchise... Generally, the second one is considered the only good one, or at least by far the best of the sequels. And just to give you a taste of what's going on with these sequels, in the fourth one, Hellraiser Bloodlines, they do go to space. Huh. How? I think the Cenobites have a spaceship that looks like the Lament configuration. Oh... I don't like that. No. Oh, I feel like that's kind of cheesy. Yeah. I mean, this like these movies are corny, but like no. that's a little too cheesy. Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. Like yeah. this is not a good idea. No. It, it's just easy way out, you know. Like you could do so much with the Cenobites, and you said aliens. <laughs> no, they're not aliens. They're still extra dimensional beings. They're just in space now. But that ties into the idea of yeah, aliens. Sure. Sure. It's interesting. <laughs> There's also this reboot that came out in 2022. Pretty good. I liked it. Um, I don't think it's like 10 out of 10, but, you know, maybe like 7 or 8 out of 10. Um, really enjoyable. And visually, I loved what they did with, like, the box has, like, different shapes now. And you can, like, sacrifice people to the box to get it to turn into a diamond or whatever. That's very fun. Enjoyed that. Like the redesign of the Cenobites. And speaking of, they cast Jamie Clayton as Pinhead, who's a trans woman, um, which is really cool in that they cast a trans woman as like a main character and a really like iconic character that people recognize. And that leans more towards the description of Pinhead in the novella as being more feminine. But there's also this discussion of then you're casting a trans woman as a villain in a horror movie. Stop doing that. <laughs> like, quit villainizing trans people. Yeah, 100%. It's not great. I mean, like, it's good. It's it's good that it leans more into the description of Pinhead, obviously, but it definitely does contribute to the portrayal of trans women as villains in horror. Yeah, so that's obviously really unfortunate that this is, like, a continued issue, but alternatively, Jamie Clayton is, like, an iconic actress. I think she killed it, so... Good for her, and I'm glad she's getting, like, iconic roles. So I think that's all we have for the analysis section of this episode. Uh, on this podcast, we always rate the movies we watch on two different scales. We rate them on how queer we think they are and on how good they were overall as a movie. So on a scale of 1 to 10, how queer did you think this movie was? I was going to give it, like, 
a two, maybe three out of ten, just because like at face value, at face value, I don't think it's super queer. But then when you start thinking about it a lot more, you do see a lot of the queerness coming out, but I'm just, I'm going off of face value. Okay. I'm going to give it like a six out of ten because... It was made in the 80s by a queer creator who was very, like, open about their queerness, and all the topics discussed within it are tied to queerness, and if you include kink as part of the queer community, then it certainly ties into uh, queer issues, and this movie has also just become, like, essential to queer people in horror over time. Like, Gottmik dressed as Pinhead on Drag Race, which is, like, one of the biggest, like, queer cultural shows at the moment. So this is clearly something that's been sort of ingrained in queer culture. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. I wasn't, I totally forgot how, I wasn't thinking about kink. I was just thinking about straight couples. So maybe I'll raise it, I'll raise it to a five. <laughs> okay. I mean, don't change your opinion. No, because I, I was like, different. kink is pretty queer, you know, and you raised that point up and I wasn't thinking about that. So I'll give it four, four point five. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and then on a scale of one to 10, how much did you enjoy this movie? Um, I did really like the movie. I think my favorite scene was literally, it was the Jesus Wept scene for sure, because I just really liked the way his skin looked on the hooks and stuff. I thought they did a really, really cool job with it. And then later on, figuring out the community reference, Hellraiser was really fun for me because I like <laughs> community a lot. Community's a great TV show. So I think I would give it probably like a 7 out of 10 or an 8 out of 10. Yeah, I was going to give it an 8 out of 10. It's not cracking the, like, top five movies for me, but it's my favorite 80s franchise, for sure. If I'm thinking about, like, classic horror movies from that era, this is one of my favorites. And I think the visuals of it are so creative and stunning. So yeah, I'll give it an 8 out of 10. So on this podcast, we always connect all of our episodes through a chain of ways in which one episode relates to the next until all the things we watch are connected through weird little connections like a shared actor, a shared topic, a shared theme. For next week's podcast, the movie that we're reviewing is connected to this one through use of extreme gore. So be on the lookout for that one. Thanks for joining us and listen back in two weeks for our next one. Queer by Candlelight is a podcast hosted, created, and edited by Elizabeth Crane and Dahlia Kumar. Cover art by Dahlia Kumar. Music by Elizabeth Crane. Music recorded by Elizabeth Crane and Ryan Allegretti. Thank you.